Hey there, welcome back to the You Say You Want, a revolutionary podcast. And I know I'm a little off schedule here. I uh, try to do once a week, but I'm pretty busy right now, so it's going to a once every two week format for the next little bit. And hopefully by the time the weather warms up or summer rolls around or whatever, uh, everything will calm down a bit and I'll be back on a once a week schedule. But I did want to take a second here and thank a couple people that are listening in now. Ross, thank you very much for reaching out and giving me some great ideas. And uh, there's a woman named Sarita who's been listening to a number of these things. And I want to thank you as well. Every listen's appreciated. Every person who's listening in and liking things is most definitely appreciated. So thank you guys very much. And to our other listeners out there, thank you guys too. I might not know your names or anything like that, but thank you very much. I've never really done much podcasting before. But it is nice to see that there are people that are actually listening, actually names and faces and what have you. So thank you very much for reaching out and uh, dropping me a line. Now on to our new episode here. Usually usually our revolutionaries are a little more revolutionary looking than these two guys are today. These, These guys look like they would be substitute librarians. Not to disrespect librarians, but they look a little bit more like substitute librarians in an elementary school than members of your local Black Lives Matter chapter or uh, regional Antifa group. They're not wearing bandanas. They're not going out with, you know, any sort of violence in mind. These guys are intellectuals. They're scholars. Nevertheless, they're members of what is called the Frankfurt School in philosophy. Frankfurt School is kind of like this catch-all term for a group of people loosely, 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 loosely associated with uh, the Frankfurt Institute for Social Research usually developing during the interwar kind of years in Germany. The group is mostly this sort of neo-Marxist scholarly type, and they have two initial problems that they want to deal with. First, the failure of any sort of revolution to take hold in any major advanced industrial economy. Remember, Marx predicted that a revolution was inevitable, and it did not happen. The second problem is the continued existence of the USSR as an agrarian communist dictatorship from a dictatorial monarchy, which Marx had not only not predicted, but said was pretty much impossible. Why? These guys are looking at why. Why this happened? What could explain this? The two people we're looking at today thought that they had the answer, and their names are Adorno and Horkheimer. First things first, we need to understand a term called critical theory. In sociology and poli-sci, critical theory is like uh, a reflection an analysis of culture and its products, the stuff that our culture produces, with the end result of examining these things and how these things work towards enforcing the status quo. It's a, it's a bit of a neo-Marxist system of thought. Many argue that it isn't really advancing a political viewpoint at all. It's more like just commentary and analysis. But the original aim of critical theory was to analyze the significance of the accepted understandings generated by wealthy society, bourgeois society, in order to show how these understandings misrepresented actual human interactions in the real world. What they're saying is the stuff that we produce as a culture justifies and legitimizes the domination of people by the wealthy class. That is to say, 
all the stuff that we have, the music, the stories, the literature, the songs, the, the movies, TV shows, it provides a certain sort of narrative. And that's given in order to explain our way of life and conceal what we don't want to think or talk about. The Frankfurt theorists generally assume that their task is to interpret the areas of society that Marx had never really dealt with, especially in like the superstructure sort of thing of society. They sort of emphasize that many previous philosophers have been misled by this desire to find what we would call truth. Or at the very least, I guess, truth is a problematic term for philosophers, so we'll call it objectively correct knowledge. Right? The Frankfurt School would argue that you can't fully understand things in this way. You have to understand things based on their historical context in which those things that you're examining actually existed. You have to put things in there, fancy word alert, historical specificity, which in German they would call, you'd have to put the thing into its Zeitgeist. Like poltergeist, but Zeitgeist. Now, after the Nazis come to power in Germany, the Frankfurt School leaves for the United States. They uh, set up shop at Columbia, then they move out west to California. Um, but we're not going to get too much into the lives of these people. I want to get more into their ideas. And two of their best works, where we'll be getting most of this stuff from, will be Horkheimer's Dialectic of Enlightenment and Adorno's Minimum Moralia. And the first was produced in, uh, was written, sorry, in 1944, and the second one in 1951. Also, a bit of a warning when we do this stuff. This is pretty depressing stuff at times. It's not like death and destruction and like the horribleness of life depressing, but it it will leave you feeling more controlled and a little less free thinking than you did like like 20 minutes ago. So there's that, you know, just be sort of warned. The big term to know from the works of Adorno and Horkheimer is the term the culture industry, which is actually a chapter in, in the book uh, Dialectic of Enlightenment. The full title of the chapter is The Culture Industry, Enlightenment as Mass Deception. If you are uh, wanting a little clue where this is going to be going, the essay is concerned with the production of cultural content in capitalism, in capitalist societies like ours. It critiques the supply-driven nature of cultural economies, as well as the products of that particular system. Right? Horkheimer and Adorno argue that mass-produced entertainment aims by its, by its very nature to appeal to vast audiences, which makes sense. You go to make a movie, you go to make a book, you're doing that for money. So you want it to appeal to as many people as humanly possible. You want your market to be as big as possible. Now, they're not suggesting that in order to do that, it has to be crap. They're just saying that that might be a byproduct because these things have to be sold on a mass market to a large number of people to recoup their money, they have to be, you could use the phrase dumbed down, I guess, I don't know, but they have to appeal to a huge number of people. A little more, maybe. Um, what we call culture, in an anthropological sense, is created by people. Music, clothes, literature, um, architecture, movies, television, whatever, right? These are cultural artifacts. They're usually created by people at that particular time. Like a thousand years ago, you find some piece of whatever uh, in the Middle East, and it might tell you something about what it is like living a thousand years ago under the Seljuk Turks in Baghdad or something, right? They'd be cultural artifacts created by actual people that they would fit, the artifact would fit an actual need that was important enough to warrant the item's creation. They told us about 
their individual lives, their needs, their values, their their ideals, their day-to-day existence. It told us something about them. However, today, for the first time in human history, we've reached this point where culture has been industrialized and mass-produced. We don't make culture anymore, Adorno and Horkheimer say. It's made for us, and we just buy it. Our cultural items are not bottom-up expressions of need that we make out of our own two hands, but rather they are top-down and forced on people from a limited selection of items, all of which, all of the items, are tightly controlled to reach the same conclusion, that the current system is the best, don't make any questions, don't rock the boat, don't make it look bad. Adorno and Horkheimer made comparisons between fascist Germany and the American film industry. To their mind, uh, both systems possessed a mass-produced sort of culture created in factory-like environments and distributed and consumed by extremely passive and homogenous group of citizens. This, this culture stuff forces the people to internalize the logic of domination, the logic of this particular uh, capitalist society that they live in. People must conform to this pre-selected set of groupings, and by doing that, all individuality is undermined, so much so that citizens will begin policing themselves, and those that don't belong uh, in a particular group will be either made to conform or made to conform to a different group. Let's say, for example, it'll be a stretch. Let's say you teach in a high school. No uniforms in this particular high school. Kids are free to wear whatever they want to, minus the probably sexist dress code, of course. Um, very few things don't pass the dress code. Maybe a, maybe a strap is too thin, or somebody's wearing a smoke weed every day shirt. So that might, might not make it past the code. But every once in a while... The idea comes up in public schools that they should institute a dress code, and every time the response is the same. The classes lose their mind. We can't have uniforms. What about our individuality? What about our sense of expression? You can't make us all wear the same clothes. What about our originality? Whatever. They believe that what they wear is an expression of their own personality, and they strongly believe it. They believe that their clothing says something about them that that thing will be gone if they're forced to wear a uniform. Then, let's say you pick a small group of these individuals and you stand them up and you look at their clothes and you think to yourself, okay, look at you guys. Um, Inevitably, they're going to be wearing the same sort of stuff. They're going to be wearing teenager gear from the mall. They're going to be wearing hoodies and jeans and t-shirts, plaid, whatever. But it's all pretty much the same. If you point out that they already have a uniform they get a little bit quieter. They all wear the same clothes. Usually then one or two people will point out that they are the most different uh, because they don't follow the rules. They'll have dark clothes on, maybe piercings or whatever. Then you can just say, okay, fine, you look as though you are a little bit different, but where did you get those clothes? Oh, you got them at the mall. You got them just a little further down at the mall. Same mall, just different stores. You are still supporting the same system that has predefined that you are not of that first type, you are of this type. Maybe some student will stand up and then say, what about me? I'm wearing second-hand clothing from the consignment store. Look at this. See how different I am? But that's not really all that different. They're just defining themselves in opposition to the first two groups of kids that pay top dollar at the mall. In their own way, they're just as defined by the same mall stores, mall clothing, factory system. They just decide to not wear those or at least to wear them second or third hand from a different source. So, how is this displaying their individuality, their originality? 
Anything made by a person is a materialization of their labor and an expression of their intentions. Makes sense. There's also going to be a use value that's added onto this thing, the benefit to the consumer that's derived from the thing's use. The exchange value is going to reflect the usefulness and the conditions of the marketplace, how much of that thing are out there. And most modern entertainment and all modern cultural artifacts like clothing-wise are highly contrived and formulaic. They're made, they're mass-produced by the millions and millions. Production techniques are repetitive. If you're talking TVs or movies, the plots are interchangeable. Hero movie, yeah, you already know how it's going to end. Near-death battle scene, hero triumphs heroically. Historical period drama, war movie, you already know who the heroes and the villains are going to be. They're monsters, we're not. Well, maybe sometimes we are, but we're just acting like monsters because the circumstances make us do bad things. We're torn up about it. We don't really want to kill people, but they do, of course. Both are examples of a form of propaganda. In the first, you think you can only fully express yourself by choosing which mass-produced items to buy and wear, never mind that, you know, half a million other people are wearing the same thing. Somehow, you're an individual when you put on that hoodie from Bangalore. Ignore the fact that everybody else wears one too. It's an expression of you. In the second example, right, movies and TV and whatever, you come out of the theater never questioning the validity of the righteousness of our side's troops or our hero. Never allowing for one iota that the enemy, you know, had a family. He might have been conscripted. He was a compassionate person. He liked music and had friends. No, never that. The hero movie, I mean, there's an existential threat to our way of life. Hero, we're a small group of heroes struggle and sacrifice, but it's not everyday people. It's exceptional people, superpowered people. You're not a superpowered person. Don't even think of trying to change the system. All of these, Adorno and Horkheimer are saying, are designed to make us complacent and at the same time believe that we are expressing our individuality. The central point of the dialectic of enlightenment is that mass industrialized culture isn't really culture at all. It doesn't really reflect something that was created by the people. It was created to make people conform. Horkheimer and Adorno contend that industrially produced culture robs people of their imagination. It takes over all of the thinking for them. The culture industry delivers the goods so that people then only have the task of consuming them. That's all they have to do. They don't have to think about it or develop it on their own. Like we mentioned in a previous pod, we're now even called consumers. Our job is to consume. We've transitioned from citizens with democratic rights and privileges, what we used to be called like 100, 150 years ago. We are taxpayers who pay taxes in exchange for stuff. And now most people just call us consumers. We consume things. Our sole job is to consume. Through mass production, everything becomes homogenized, and whatever diversity remains is only in the little details, the little trivialities, the choice of a car color, uh, a burger with or without cheese, uh, country or hip-hop on Spotify, which playlist, which team jersey do you buy on Amazon, whether you think DC heroes are better than Marvel superheroes. It doesn't matter, but we will have huge arguments over these things as though it actually does. Everything becomes compressed through a process of the imposing of these kind of categories that already exist. We are just made to fit into them. The aims of the culture industry are the same as in every industry. They're economic. All endeavors become focused on economic success. The cultural producers do not produce the best. They don't even want to. They don't care. Their job is to make money. They produce what will make cash. 
Usually, whatever makes the most money is determined to be the best. 200 years ago, you could spend your whole lifetime becoming good enough as a musician to make money, to make a living as a musician. Now, people with no musical knowledge become multimillionaires recording an auto-tuned album or being a featured musician on somebody else's song. It doesn't matter if it's good or original. It matters that it sells, that it makes money for someone. In fact, being original ends up being detrimental because we have trouble classifying it into these schemas. Consuming things that are genuinely original, we have no contextual way of understanding it, so it's less popular. What people want in such an environment is the comfort of easily understood recycled ideas presented in a slightly different way, like a, like a cover song that switches, you know, genres. Novelty plus familiarity, like a movie in three parts. You know what's going to happen, but you're going to watch the other two as well. Novelty plus familiarity. And, and in case we're unaware of which ones we're supposed to like, the various industries all hold award ceremonies, Grammys, Oscars, Junos, Tonys, whatever, all put on by that industry, telling the public which products of that industry they should be giving money to. These award shows are just the various sector of the culture industry giving awards to itself. And by extension, advertising which film or music or plays you should, you should go make a point of consuming. In the 1920s, the Smithsonian Institute sent around a father and son team, John and Alan Lomax, to collect folk songs. Now, folk songs, this is the way music that music used to be, right? Uh, folk songs would develop in a particular region. So they sent these two around, and they were given the job of recording these songs and cataloging them. The Smithsonian knew that records and the culture industry would spell the end of local cultures and local music. Alan lamented, uh, the increasing homogenizing effects of mass commercial culture upon local traditional cultures all around the world. He called it cultural grayout. So they sent these two around just to find locally developed songs. And it's a good thing that they did. Out of these recordings, we got people like, you know, Woody Guthrie, Lead Belly, Robert Johnson, Pete Seeger, all kinds of individuals who had been using this local culture and singing it to people for their entire lives. They're the songs that represented the people who were actually alive and singing those songs at the time. There were songs from juke joints, from bars. There were country work songs. There were all kinds of songs that would have disappeared because they were not commercially viable. Oftentimes, they don't have an author. They've been around for a couple hundred years. Nobody knows where they came from. Everybody just adds a verse. It becomes a communal kind of creation. Everybody might know it. The, the only spot really where I can think of them actually still existing. There are some that are still around. We would know the songs to hear them. But the only place where we actually reproduce them anymore, I suppose, would be children's songs. And they might be made by somebody else, but they're so old that nobody gets to copyright them. Nobody gets to make much money off of them. The point is, it's one of the last examples in Western industrialized society of people who were creating culture without expecting much money or any money in return. The point of the activity was the activity. And ultimately, the Smithsonian was right. The use of the record, later tapes and CDs, MP3s, allowed the culture of music throughout North America and around the world to be pretty standardized and industrialized. There's no involvement of the music with the community because the radio and the internet, we all have the same versions of songs. And although we try to apply them to our lives, this is sometimes awkward. You know, it's awkward at best. Uh, a fact I was reminded of 
last year as I walked past a group of grade seven and eight Canadian kids all singing, you know, Despacito with made up words that they thought sounded Spanish. It doesn't really fit. The cause of this is quite simple. Money. Industrialism. Producers want the most money from a product. However, this can't be said to be culture or what culture is supposed to be. It can only be described as being a form of commerce. Just like any other form of commerce, it's simply a monetary exchange. You're buying a standard product for a standard fee. And the part that I often find depressing when it comes to this, there doesn't seem to be much of a way out. There's no subversive way to express yourself that hasn't been brought into the system already. Are you an, are you an angry leftist? that loves old Rage Against the Machine tunes, they're available on Sony Records. You can go buy them there. You want a shirt that expresses how anti-establishment you are? Go buy a Guevara t-shirt, you know, mass-produced Chinese factory. You want to go no labels at all? Walmart selling plain white tees. Packages of three for 15, 10 bucks, whatever. Fruit of the Loom, I think. Maybe you're a, maybe you're a GMO-free, peace-loving hippie. Walmart's got a whole GMO-free section now. Right, go down there. You need some incense? Eh, try Bed Bath & Beyond. Maybe... Maybe winners, maybe Safeway. I don't know. You can also grab yourself a mass-produced poncho complete with little frayed threads for that well-worn look. Lucky, you can buy pre-ripped jeans that'll still work for this look just like last year when your black leather jacket was brand new and you had that sick new hairstyle. You want to redefine yourself? Just take another trip to the mall. There's a world of ways to, finger quote, express yourself. Now, I know at this point these guys just spent the last, you know, 21 minutes sounding like a couple grumpy old men shaking their fists at these youngsters and their hip-hop music. Um, but their point's a real one, and it's interesting. We spend our time defining ourselves through this constructed means, and we miss real opportunities for development. And we see teens buying clothes and posters and adopting new ways of acting based on a TV show or a musician, and then what? In a year or two, they have to do it all over again with something new when the old one isn't it anymore. And the consumer's been left with nothing. Nothing except the idea that the, the next big thing will maybe make them feel fulfilled. Then it'll be a car. Then it'll be a house. Then it'll be a vacation. Then it'll be a retirement plan. The point is keeping you consuming so you believe that consumption will make you happy. And none of them will really make you happy. But all of them are training you to believe that you can buy happiness, that you can buy culture, that you can buy yourself a life. Even the great works of art from the past have fallen prey to this. Your child has most likely been exposed to Bach or Beethoven in an advertisement. The Mona Lisa, you probably saw it first on a movie or a television show. As Adorno says, culture in a modern context is a type of defrauding, they would say it is a fundamental lie. It doesn't give you individuality. It pulls you into an easily controlled and defined group so that you can be marketed to and advertisers and others can more completely use you for their own economic purposes. The last problem that they had uh, is what we'll take a quick look at here. Leisure time. How do you spend your time when you aren't working? Unlike what a lot of people do today, Adorno and Horkheimer felt that your time not working was best spent learning and growing and developing the skills that you will need in the future to deal with your problems. Your boss probably doesn't really help with that, does he? He doesn't really pay for you to develop your skills. He doesn't really care about that. He cares about how much money you make for him or her. But what do we do with our leisure time? Instead, they said, we run back into the arms of the culture industry. 
and the culture industry, again, is only too willing to provide us with mindless escapism. No real means of improving ourselves or our lot in life, just escapism. Movies allow you to put yourself in the role of a hero that you're never going to be in real life. Modern music from the culture industry is constantly reminding you that, you know, heteronormative romance is going to be the only relationship that's going to be able to give your life any value. TV is just pageantry to keep you watching long enough to see the next commercial. The shows themselves are also propagandizing you to be constantly wanting things that are like ever-present on these TV shows and we never really question. How do the friends on Friends afford such a nice apartment and work so little? I know someone's going to be like, uh, she got it from her aunt or grandma or something like that. But these guys work like part-time jobs and they have the nicest apartments, the nicest clothes, they're always going out. And you sit there and you watch that as a consumer and you're like, what the hell is wrong with me in my life? Oh wait, what's this next commercial for? These people look happy, they look hot, they look popular, I'll just buy whatever that is. What's that song in the background? Happy by Pharrell? Oh, great tune, I'm feeling pretty good about this. Right? What's on next, I wonder? And it goes on and on until you go back to work the next day. Your weekend? It's in this manic pursuit of relaxation so that you're ready for work on Monday. As a, as a quick aside, Netflix and the internet don't work exactly the same way. Lots of different agencies haven't totally figured out how to maximize ads on the web, like even podcasts, for example. You know those, you know those podcasts that you listen to, and it will say like, uh, "Use this promo code for whatever, whatever." Ha ha ha! You know, I got this deal for you. Use our promo code. That's not a deal. That's not a deal at all. What they're doing is tracking how many people are actually being affected by that ad. They're tracking how many people use that code, so they actually know the reach of that advertisement. It's to calculate market engagement. It's not to give you a deal. So anyways, as an aside, I'm back to it again. So to go back to their original concerns, why has the socialist revolution not emerged? In the final analysis, the answer is pretty straightforward. It's pretty simple. Why do we have more wealth than ever before and we still have pockets of poverty? Why do we still have disease? Why is healthcare not top-notch? Why do we still have homelessness? Why do we still have violence and exploitation? Well, the answer is pretty simple. Somebody's been distracting us. Somebody's been using billions of dollars every year and the brightest minds in psychology to distract us. Well, what can we do about it? I've got a few ideas, but I'll save that for a later podcast because right now uh, I'm going to go downstairs and uh, I just bought this new 60-inch television. I'm going to binge watch that new Altered Carbon show. I hear it's a lot like Blade Runner, you know, which I used to love. So that'll be pretty good. Then, of course, I I got to start getting ready for work tomorrow. So really, I'm not going to have too much time to get that done. But I hope you like this episode. And thank you very much for listening. What the-